Welcome once again to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. I am your host, Philip A. Jones. As always, we bring you news and views from across the criminal justice spectrum. We also raise awareness about topics relating to prison and the carceral system. Today, we are joined by a trauma-trained therapist and social worker who is here to speak on the subject of trauma and its effects. How does this look for those incarcerated and what can be done about it? Please welcome to the show, Beth Chatham. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Philip? I'm okay. I'm okay. I've been waiting to talk to you in this most, you know, awe-inspiring subject because so many people um, suffer uh, from trauma and so many in prisons especially. And so we wanted to talk to you um, and get some of your insights and ask you a few questions if that's okay. Absolutely. Well, let's begin. Can you tell our listeners where you're from and a little bit about your background? Sure. I was born close to your hometown of Baltimore. Um, and I currently, I still live in Maryland, but on the Eastern shore in a really small rural town, I graduated from uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County in 1992 with degrees in sociology and social work and graduated from Salisbury University with my master's in social work in 2007 and got my clinical license in 2014. I've worked as a child abuse investigator in adult and adolescent inpatient psychiatric hospitals as um, in international adoptions and adolescents who were at risk of being removed from their home um, and placed into detention centers. That's awesome. You know, and I went through the juvenile system myself. I wish we would have had in place individuals such as yourself who we could have, you know, talked to and consulted um, in terms of what I had to face and the things that was going to proceed after my juvenile uh, placement. That's the school to prison pipeline. But that's another show. I was just thinking of that as you were speaking. I wish that we had more intervention for juveniles um, and people that's um, a certain age that's not accountable. What made you want to be a trauma therapist? Oh, did you have an answer? I mean, you want to answer something that I said? Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I don't think like the field of trauma work really has come into its own probably in the last 10 or 15 years. So I don't know that we would have known what to do with it um, back when I first started in the 90s. That's true. And that's probably why the answer to everything back then was to put uh, juveniles in placement in custody and give them give them probation and have them, you know, supervised because they didn't have they didn't know how to uh, deal with it at that time. And that's unfortunate. Uh, what made you want yeah. to be a trauma therapist? Well, I kind of came on it by accident very early in my practice when I was working with the adolescents in detention centers, I worked with this young boy who had gone to, and I know you know, you probably know this place, the Hickey School in Baltimore County. And I asked him, like, why were you selling drugs? And his answer to me was, because my mom is a drug addict and an alcoholic. And if I don't sell drugs, my sister and I are not going to have a place to sleep and we're not going to have food to eat. And so I don't really have a choice. 
because I don't have other skills. And then when I worked at the inpatient adolescent treatment, um, I saw kids there that just were trauma and trauma and trauma. And then they would act out and the staff was putting, you know, restraining them and re-traumatizing. So when I got the opportunity to take this really awesome training, I jumped at it and um, really have never looked back. And this is the reason why I say we need intervention um, and why we need alternatives to incarceration. Because just from listening to the story of the young guy and what he told you, that has been my story for years. That's what I I told um, everyone that I spoke to when I first was arrested. You know, some people will say, you know, selling drugs is a crime. Yes, absolutely. Some people will say using drugs is a crime. I say no. I think it's uh, it's more of a health issue. But if you look at it in terms of what he said, um, it should have you view it differently. Because we're not talking about the people who smuggle in tons of drugs into the inner city. We're talking about a young kid who probably has, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of bags of possession of drugs, and he's selling it, trying to make a little, just trying to make it so that he can survive. Um, Not to say that it's a right or wrong thing, but to say that, Sometimes in survival, um, you reach out for the closest fruit, and that's something that's permeating in the inner city of Baltimore and all around the country. So I can understand that. It made sense at the time, and it still does. Well, talk to us about trauma, um, what it is, and how is uh, one affected by it? So trauma, trauma affects people in different ways, and people see trauma in different ways. So What's traumatizing to you may not be traumatizing to someone else. Like, for example, I have a patient who her father was in the Air Force and they spent some time in Turkey and she would just randomly see dead bodies laying in the street. And she it was part of her childhood. She thinks it doesn't bother her at all. I have another patient who was in Afghanistan as a news photographer And her perception of seeing dead bodies in the street was very, very different. And so their experiences, while kind of similar, had very different effects on them. Um, There is some school of thought that things like fibromyalgia is an unresolved trauma response. And we do know that the body never forgets. Trauma causes physical illnesses. And along with anxiety, depression, low self-esteem. I like to use this thing called the story that I tell myself. Say, for example, you meet a guy, he asks for your phone number, you go home and you're waiting, waiting, waiting for him to call and he never calls. And the story that you tell yourself, your trauma brain tells you, is that I'm a loser, I'm unlovable, of course he wouldn't call me, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm whatever. When the fact of the matter may be, that he might have lost your phone number, or he might be sick, or some other random reason might have happened. So, and then that kind of puts you on a hamster wheel, and it just reinforces what the trauma has already done to you. Those negative thoughts perpetuate the trauma. So you're almost re-traumatizing yourself. You're easily triggered. The PTSD part of it is... You know, you're hypervigilant, you're 
know, things like they talk about a lot, people coming back from war, noises, bangs, cars backfiring are triggers for them. And trauma rewires your brain. So you then begin to think with that trauma of brain. And since it's changing your DNA, when you have children, that rewired DNA is then passed down through generations. So it's really fascinating what it can do to the body over and above just what you think, um, what you might think it, it does. Do you find that a lot of formerly incarcerated men and women suffer from trauma? Do you mean after they come out or before? Well, I'm, I was asking about afterwards because that's when you see them, right? Um, while they're still right. in, I'm I mean, I'm in, so I know that I suffer from it, but I was wondering, do you come in contact and you find that a lot of people that have been incarcerated actually suffer from trauma? Yes. I am thinking of a patient of mine who wanted so badly to not go back to jail, and his trauma brain couldn't handle it, couldn't function on the outside. Um because he did not have the skills to, it was easier for him because he knew what the rules were inside. And it was very triggering for him to be on the outside, if that makes sense. I've heard that before. I cannot relate because I never released. Um, so I don't know what it's like once I'm going to be free. I'm God willing that when that day comes. But what I do know is that because I don't have that reference, I hate uh, the rules, whether I know them or not in here, because there's too many of them. And not only that, none of them make sense. So I would never be okay with the rules in here because I know them versus those that are out in society. Um, but I st but I can't say because I've not been released. This is my first um, and only incarceration, and I've been in here since it started. So I've heard that, and that's interesting and fascinating for those listening. Um, you might You might have heard that as well. Yeah, I, one of the things that I would highly suggest, and I'm trying to find curriculum to see if it exists, is to have a peer support group of people who have previously been incarcerated to have a peer support group where um, they can help each other readjust. So far, I have not found curriculum for that, but I'm going to keep looking. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something interesting. I might can start on writing something up on that myself as a consultant because there should be uh, some curriculum available for that because it's so widespread and you would think that they would want to address it. You know what I mean? I would hope so. I hope I'm not the only one. What are your thoughts about mental health in prison? Uh, what should therapy look like in a prison setting? I think that mental health in prisons are a joke. It can be really challenging to treat trauma while you're still being traumatized. But here's what I would suggest. I would suggest at minimum regular weekly sessions of 45 minutes at least for each individual who has a mental health diagnosis and that every person coming in should have a mental health assessment to determine whether or not they meet any of the criteria for the DSM, um, which is our diagnostic manual. And I think that there should be 
at least group sessions that everyone can attend at least one group mental health session every week. I like that. No, that is awesome. And you know what? I absolutely agree with that because I believe that each person has different needs um, and different levels to uh, their mental health uh, concerns. And so they are supposed to do that, actually, because that's what the uh, processing center is uh, for. When you, when you get sentenced, and they send you to the MRDCC, Maryland uh, Receptionist Classification and Diagnostics um, Center, and they're supposed to do all that. I went through there, and I did speak to uh, mental health uh, specialists, uh, but it wasn't enough because they, there was no follow-up. And I don't know what they put in your jacket or your record, but I just think that each person coming in need to be assessed, like you said, and we need to see what their particular needs are and create um, something um, inside that can address that so that they are, you know, on their way to wellness and healing um, as they go through um, the time that they must serve. Absolutely. My, my other thought is instead of sending someone to solitary confinement to have peer conflict resolution, um, because there's no such thing as solitary confinement when you get out of prison, you need to learn how to solve problems. And I feel like that would be a better answer than just getting rid of somebody or giving them an adult timeout. Yeah, I think that goes to something you're saying. It goes to conflict resolution. Some of the things that you're going to face. Um, I know someone who got out recently, and uh, he was in the store, and he was standing, and he was talking to another guy, and um, he turned around abruptly, and he told another individual who was behind him, you know, back up off of me. Why are you all over me? Why are you hovering over my shoulder? And then the guy who he was talking to who had been out for a while looked at him and said, man, what's going on? Are you okay? He said, man, because that man ain't going to And uh, it was fascinating because I think that was an indicator that he was suffering some type of uh, PTSD. Um, but it was fascinating because he, he reacted that way after being incarcerated for so long. He wasn't used to uh, people being close to him. And this guy wasn't even really close to him. So I I just want to say that men and women who've been in prison for long amounts of time, they are going to respond to life in the world quite differently until they adjust. Um, and that takes uh, counseling and therapy. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. Let's pick up on the other side, and we'll pick back up with the discussion. Sounds like a plan. The caller has hung up. Thank you all for listening, subscribing, and sharing my podcast. Here are three ways to help me today. Consider donating, if you can, to my GoFundMe for my freedom efforts. You can find that by typing in Incarcerated Lives Matter, Philip Alvin Jones on GoFundMe. Subscribe today to my YouTube channel, The Wall Behind and Beyond. Comment and share. We are on our journey to a 1,000 subscribers. We can do this. Visit GrantParoleToPhilip.com. It's a one-stop shop that has my direct contact info and awesome social media sites. Please get in touch with us if you'd like to help in any way with Team Philip. Thank you, and keep listening to The Wall, Behind and Beyond. Back on the other side, talking with Beth, and we're covering some great and fascinating topics in the trauma-informed world of knowledge and information. Besides medication, what can incarcerated individuals do to cope with mental health issues? 
there are some really great treatment modalities that would work very well. But I think in the absence of mental health, I think mindfulness is really a great place to start because that helps calm you. It helps ground you and keep you in the present, which when you've been triggered for your trauma is very helpful. Yoga would be awesome. I mean, there are things that that can be done, but I think that the powers that be in any prison setting would have to buy into it. You know, there needs to be a quiet place where you can just go and chill and not hear any of the crap that's going out on the unit or, you know, just look out a window for a few minutes to just see what's going on out in the world or look at something different. I'm glad you made that that comment because that's a good segue because a lot of the organizations who have been consulting lately uh, with uh, some of the European um, prison systems, the Norwegians, for instance, they talk about being able to look out and see scenery, being able to see trees and open your window and take in the air. Um, they talk about being treated in a humane way, being able to take part in things in your community to show that you are still a part of it. Um, there are different things that they've been talking about, and a lot of the uh, policymakers from America have been looking into them. And so one of my hopes is that um, we will catch up um, with some of these countries around the world, over in Europe, for instance, and we will start to begin to see that it's not all about medication. Uh, mental health consists of, you know, acclimating to your environment, but in a healthy and social way so that you can not lose that part of your humanity. You know what I'm saying? Well, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things that I would challenge the prison administration to do is to get their CEOs to treat the people that live inside like people. Because frankly, that's your house. That's where you live. And it needs to be, they need to understand that that's where you live and that you are still a person. If you call a kid a brat, they're going to grow up to be a brat. If you call someone who lives in a prison, a prisoner, a convict, an inmate, all of those things, that's what they're going to be. And that's what their mindset will be. And so to change that has to come from, it has to come from the person to understand, to change what they call themselves, a person who happens to live in a prison rather than an inmate or a prisoner. And then it has to trickle down to the CEOs to treat people like people. For sure. Well, that's one of the things that they've been trying to adjust, but uh, it hasn't been um, all the way completed because they call them incarcerated individuals now. They call them um, adults in custody. Then they call the ones who are released uh, returning citizens. All of this is a start, but why not just call somebody their name? I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. uh, Mr. By Your Name, you know, you're not a, we're not an inmate, you know what I'm saying? We're not convicts, yeah. we're not prisoners, we're not any of that, you know what I'm saying? And so I just think if they call people their names and acknowledge them, 
good morning. You know what I'm saying? These are simple things that can do they can do um that will remind a person that you're not um your worst mistake, uh, but you're still a human being. You know what I mean? I think that sounds rational and reasonable. And I don't think it's that big of a challenge to do, to call somebody by their name. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice to corrections policymakers about how to best treat or care for incarcerated individuals who suffer from mental health issues? I mean, what what should that look like? I think it would be easier to fix than they think it would be. And by fix, I put that in quotes. Um, because if you run on the mental health department, like a mental health clinic, if, I, and I don't know this, so this might be something like, do you have Medicare or Medicaid for insurance? No, we got sick call. And if something's wrong, you sign up for it, they call you and then they ask you for a copay. Um, and then if they determine through their uh, labs or tests that something is wrong, then they schedule you for follow-up. That's about it. Okay, so it would seem to me that you would qualify for some kind of Medicare or Medicaid because of your income. And if that's the case, you could hire clinicians and open essentially an outpatient mental health clinic right there in the prison that would charge insurance companies and make them billable hours and the clinic would essentially pay for itself. It's important to have, so my caseload is around 100 people, but I don't see all those patients every week. They're, so it's kind of a fluid caseload. And so I would think for every 100 people um, that are incarcerated, there should be one therapist and run it like a mental health clinic rather than 10 minutes here or putting in a note that you want to see somebody because you can't always, like, I know that if I wait for my patients to call me when they're feeling depressed, some of them are probably not going to because they're depressed and they don't want to get out of bed. But if I, they know they have an appointment with me every Tuesday at two o'clock, they'll show up for that. And I can assess them every time I see them which is so important to be able to look at somebody and see, you know, their body language, their affects, the way they're talking to you, to be able to make those good clinical judgments about what they need for their, for their continued success. I think that's a great idea. And I hope that someone's listening and I hope that they run with that because I've not heard that before, but that is an excellent way to solve these these issues that we deal with um, in a mental health field, in an in incarcerated setting. Um, so I hope that we could uh, implement that on some level. It will solve the whole problem. Nobody can complain that it's costing too much. Exactly. What would you like our listeners to take away from this interview? One of the things that's really important for me is that People will not be successful if they're not given the proper tools to do so. So getting some of those treatment modalities inside is really important so that people can learn, you know, you can't say don't sell drugs if you don't give them an alternative of what else to do, right? Don't hit somebody in anger, but then you never tell them what is a better alternative 
So you need to, to give someone the tools to be successful. And it's really, it's possible to correct the problems of this, the system if people really wanted to do it. And trauma is not something that goes away. It, it can take five to seven years to really fully process someone's trauma. Um, and I think the most important thing is don't give up. Absolutely. That's powerful. Thank you so much. How can people get a hold of you for more information about therapy treatments or to learn how to help the loved one that's inside? Well, I am at Four All Seasons, which is in Easton, Maryland. My number there is 410-822-1018. Thank you so much, Beth, for stopping by. That was all inspiring. There were so many things that grabbed my attention and so many things that I would love to follow up on because you had a lot of solutions. Um, And that's one of the things we try to get to on this podcast. It's not just pointing out the problems, but how do we arrive at solutions? So again, I thank you, and I'm so glad that you came by today. Thank you for having me. For sure. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Same here. As always, I want to give a special thanks to our listeners for your continued support of The Wall Behind and Beyond. And if you haven't already, I ask that you go and subscribe to our YouTube channel, at the wall behind and beyond. We want to be able to notify you every week when a new episode drops so you get exclusive access. Also, share the episode that you like with friends and post our links on your socials. You guys are the show, and as we grow, we will bring you more quality content. Remember, I am because we are. If you want to get a hold of me direct, I can be reached via email at www.jpay.com 881-507, Washington State. Take care, everyone, and be well.